Welcome to The Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or CAL. The Great Asian Pushback features stories of defiance and hope from Southeast and East Asia. Individuals, young and old, and organizations on the ground and online are assisting authoritarian regimes. There's our voices crying out for freedom and democracy. These podcasts aim to empower and inspire all of you out there who are shining the light on the darkness in this part of the world. Hello, welcome to the Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or CALD. I'm Marites Vitug, a journalist from the Philippines, and I will be your host for this series. Today, Indonesia enjoys a distinction of being the most stable democracy in Southeast Asia. This is happening amid the decline of democracy in the Philippines and Thailand and a political crisis plaguing Malaysia's young democracy. As the largest economy in the region, Indonesia has long been considered as the first among equals in ASEAN or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Can Indonesia push ASEAN towards a more democratic direction? We will talk about this big question and related issues in this episode of our podcast. Our guest is Rafendi Jamin, former chairperson of the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights. Currently, he is senior advisor for the Human Rights Working Group Indonesia. Rafendi joins us from Jakarta. Welcome to the Great Asian Pushback, Jafendi. Thank you for making time for this interview. Thank you so much, Marites. Thank you for the very, very generous introduction. Well, let's start with, the, of course, the big issue of Indonesia as the acknowledged most democratic, democratic country in ASEAN, having eclipsed the Philippines, my country. So do you share this view and what factors make Indonesia a stable democracy? Yeah, uh, we learn a lot from the Philippine democracy. It was, I think, started in 1986, right? And uh, that's inspired uh, the ideas of uh, uh, almost all elements, all, all democratic elements of Indonesian society. I, I remember the time, you know, how, how the changes took place there. Uh, yes, Indonesia, learning from those uh, lessons learned uh, from the Philippine and uh, toppling uh, 30 years authoritarian regime of Suharto, which was actually also, uh, of course, uh, uh, how do you call that, supported by, by the economic crisis at the time that became a political opportunity for a radical change in terms of a, of a, of a system, of a state. And uh, since then, we, we, I think, built the foundation of a, of a democracy first through amending our constitution. So by amending the constitution, adopting almost all norms, uh, specific norms and values of human rights, that is a very good starting point of our reforms. And then it was followed up by the, 
the, the, the the separation of of the armed forces the with the po the police forces yeah democracy need a police forces so at the beginning we know if this is not separated then we will not have a very healthy we can never have a healthy democracy so military and police were separated at the same time the building of a legal framework more and more legal framework based on rights norms as i said in the on, on the amendment of the constitution and it was followed up as well with the building up of independent institution so you need an institutional at the same time a legal framework which is a right based legal framework and the institution that implemented so that the check and balance system develop and grow at the same time electoral process is needed for democracy we believe with multi party democracy so uh, learning by doing is the process of the two decade of democracy i, will, I wouldn't say that uh, that our democracy now is quite mature because corruption is still very rampant and the corruption is is also uh, rooted uh, from the political process from the, the so called multi party you know the large the large uh, uh, territory of indonesia makes it very expensive to run for a leadership you need billion dollars you know to run for for uh, for uh, uh, a campaign and uh, and, and uh, focusing so that is why uh, despite of these challenges you know some of the structure that guide that guarding the democracy is still working that's why that you know uh, the world can see that this is a, a kind of stable democracy after two decades of uh, exercising and learning how, what democracy is so with those you know lessons learned and the changes in the past uh, two decades how can indonesia use its position in asean to strengthen uh, to make asean a stronger rights based organization you know uh, later we can talk about what's happening in myanmar and cambodia but maybe now as a, as we look at the big picture how can indonesia use its strength all right <clears throat> that's an interesting uh, question marites i i am myself was becoming interested into asean as a regional blob for my advocacy only very reason it was only in 1996 i didn't care about asean before in my work as human rights activist i go straight to the un system there are a lot of special rapporteur there are a lot of uh, uh, convention monitoring the implementation of human rights convention and using the bodies at the un at that time was still human rights commission and then now become human rights council right so we were using that only back in 1996 that we think that asean is becoming interesting yeah why because there has been a very good changes norms when they are trying to set up the asean charter so our engagement as civil society 
Philippine civil society, almost all uh, member civil society from all member states, we, we begin to advocate what democracy is and how Indonesia, especially from, because I came from Indonesia, can play a bigger role in terms of uh, building a rights-based regional bloc. So that's how it started. So uh, the most important point as well, <clears throat> Indonesia has been playing, uh, 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 refraining itself as a big brother of the bloc. You know, it is not like the SARC, you know, where you have a giant India. So when giant India doesn't want to do anything, the SARC is a kind of limb, yeah? Uh, limb, you know, it, it doesn't move. And uh, that's, that's, I think, a very good uh, starting in the regional cooperation that a big country like Indonesia, in terms of territory, you know, 250, 250 millions is almost uh, one third of the whole ASEAN uh, population. Yeah, even the territory is also very, very huge, the water as well as mainland territory. So Indonesia is always playing not as a big brother. So uh, the leadership is always leadership by example, is not telling what to, telling you what to do, but showing how we do it, you know, how things will work. And, and that's the learning process taking place. So our focus since the Indonesian uh, re political reform in ASEAN is building up this political cooperation. And through the political cooperation, then you are be a, you will be able to, to mainstream the norms, democratic norms, human rights and uh, norms and values. That's why you have a charter that is a legally binding institution that actually bound to all ASEAN member states with a very strong uh, articles on the commitment of good governance, fundamental rights, yeah, as part of the basis, constitutional basis of the region. So that's a starting point. And then it will be translated into different <clears throat> institutions. That's why Article 14 created the ICER, the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission of Human Rights. And immediately after that, you know, only six months after that, ASEAN has the second human rights body. It was the ASEAN Commission on Women and Children, right? So it was quite a, a fast process after the charter. And when the charter is there, when the institution is there, now you are struggling with that institution within ASEAN. That's why I became a representative of Indonesia into the ICER. Well, that's, you call it as a Philippine activist, a crossover strategy. You know, that's part of my strategy as an activist. And I became a representative of my government. But at the same time, I'm acting as an independent commissioner or representative. So through the political pillars, that's one main truth. The second one, the political pillars also introducing the democratic value through uh, advocating electoral democracy. So that is how Indonesia is always trying to advocate electoral democracy, you know, and, and, and advocating, uh, uh, how do you call that, an independent party or, or multi-party system. 
Yes, it is going to be a very long uh, cooperation because, you know, ASEAN consists of some member states, which is one party system, even an absolute monarchy. So uh, by way of doing this, you know, by introducing that multi-party works, uh, 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 that, that is the, the kind of sharing norms, which is actually then the, the goals of the ASEAN uh, cooperation itself. Yes. So it's very interesting. You talk about crossing, crossing over from being an activist to being uh, representing your government. And then you became chair of the AICHR. So what were your experiences like? What were the most difficult moments maybe as, as a leader of AICHR? Uh, well, uh, as all of us know that the leadership of the ASEAN bodies is always taking turn, right? It's always one year turn and it's, it's actually alphabetical. Yeah? And some, a lot of bodies of ASEAN is alphabetical. That's why now you have Brunei and the second, and the next one will be Cambodia, right? Uh, and then after that, Indonesia in 2023. So it's alphabetical. Actually, uh, being a chair is not an elected chair. It's different with, uh, with this, that's one point. But having a position as a chair, you have some opportunity, which is more than just a member state of a body. So when I was the chair, I think I was really able to expedite, you know, to expedite what I want I chair to be, you know, in the process of uh, how you linking up with other ASEAN bodies. First, with our sister organization, the ACWC, at that time, because it was born almost together. So there was a kind of competition between these two bodies, you know. Everybody is denying others, right? So in my during my chair in 2011, I think that was of the beginning process where these two bodies can sit around together and have a talk about how we are going to proceed and how we perceive you know, our role as both human rights body within ASEAN. That's one. The second one that I did during my chair is the relationship with civil society. You know, civil society and state, that's a kind of relationship which has a very different nature and character, which depends on the political system of the member state. And the absolute monarchy system. So there is no, uh, 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 there is no culture of a vibrant, talkative, focal civil society to the king or to the governments. Yeah? At the same time, uh, in, the, in the autocratic uh, system, in the one-party system, the, the state sees peoples you know, as part of the state because they are representing the people. They are revolutionaries you know, that build the party based from the people. So they will say, there is no such vibrant, talkative, focal, you know, that's not accepted by, by the system. So in that way, you're trying now to, to uh, I was able actually then to, to build trust, you know, yeah, yeah, this is how civil society works. Civil society, although they are part of your people, they're part of your party, but you need some independence of the civil society groups in order to have a very good independent feedback that will be good for your own function as government, right? So these are the, 
the thing that I, I think I was able to expedite the process. A lot of difficulties because some rejection, some trying to boycott, you know, but then I think I was able to do it as, as I, I, I wanted at that time. Yes, uh, actually, it's a very difficult position, I think, because as you know, and we in the ASEAN know that human rights protection and authoritarian regimes do not mix uh, <laughs> here in the ASEAN region. And then, so what is the most effective way for countries to uphold human rights? You said before, and I quote, ultimately, the settlement of human rights cases lies at the national level. So. Yeah. Is, is that, what is the best way really for countries to uphold human rights? Okay. Uh, yeah, indeed, that was actually my, my, my statement. Several times I said that, you know, I am <clears throat> a human rights activist and I was, I was, uh, I grew up from a very authoritarian regime as an activist, right? I was, I was even then also effective uh, during that time. So, uh, that's why international advocacy is one of my core activities at that time. Uh, this international uh, activities provides, provides you the space, you know, to build up pressure to make change because who is going to make change is the government themselves. If they don't want to change, you know, nothing's gonna change in the society, right? So that's why pressure is needed. So in an undemocratic country at that time, international, international pressure is, the, is, how do you call that, the, uh, the most important uh, instrument that you use, yeah? And when there is a democratic space, you know, then we will be more engaging and building trust with the government's officials, right? So uh, although, you know, in an authoritarian system or in a democratic, uh, democratic context, still the real change is actually at the national level because it is the laws, regulations, institution, culture, you're building up way of work, you're building up cultures of nonviolence. It is always at the national level. You know, that's why I said that, you know, changes will be felt at the national level, you know, uh, whatever you say at the international regional level, when it doesn't affect any changes, it won't be meaningful for the people on the ground. So let's go to the hot topic in ASEAN these days, Myanmar. You know, uh, recently they released some political prisoners, although there are still a number who are detained, many have been killed. Uh, and ASEAN, but ASEAN for the first time did not invite a leader of a member country to its meeting. Uh, what do you think can be done about this problem called Myanmar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we have we have experience. Uh, we have experience dealing with authoritarian military regime of Myanmar, and it was we as well. Even Indonesia at the time, you know, uh, uh, giving some space, an opportunity for Myanmar. To become a to become a chair of, of ASEAN, right? Uh, with the promise that the military uh, will, will be conducting an, a democratic election process. So, so that's why then at that time, it, uh, 
during my my time there that uh, that Myanmar Myanmar was promising some uh, uh, political change at the national level, so they were given some space and opportunity to to become a lead uh, in the ASEAN uh, leadership, right? And now another coup is taking place. So we will have to face and deal with this. And I think as a regional organization, you know, building up the charter, there is a dispute. There, there are articles about how are you going to do, to settle dispute, but this mechanism hasn't been used. You know, this is a norms, but the mechanism was not yet agreed upon and conducted and implemented. But the practices, practices is important in this context. Practices <clears throat> like what now ASEAN is doing, you know, by not inviting, you know, an official, that is already a kind of sanction, sanction that the regional bloc can do. You know, we we are not yet at the at the situation like in the organization of American state or the African Union. You know, when there is a breach, a serious breach of the charter, then there are a very robust sanction mechanism taking place. For example, like uh, 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 suspending the membership. You know, but this suspending even not happening yet in our practice. So these are the things that has to be built on, you know, in the protest as a regional block, you know, to really uh, become meaningful in the context of maintaining cooperation at the same time, also sharing and building up uh, the values and norms that agreed, you know, democracy, rule, rule of law, good governance, and for respect to fundamental rights. Let's go to the other authoritarian country in ASEAN. I mean, you've been uh, working on human rights issues for a long time. So what are your thoughts about Cambodia? I mean, it's been there for a long time. You've said earlier before our interview that it's been an authoritarian state for many years. And recently, Cambodia passed a law banning uh, dual citizens from uh, seeking uh, higher posts, meaning I think this is referring to their opposition leaders in exile who, who will be practically excluded from the election. So again, this is a basic right to participate in elections. So what are your thoughts? So, I mean, as a human rights um, activist. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, thank you, Maritas. Yes, you know, this is a very, how do you call it? It's not something new. It's it's one one uh, one uh, how do you call that a very common tools of an authoritarian governments to suppress you know the opposition. So that happens as well in Myanmar when you know if, when Aung San Suu Kyi was not yet elected. There was also a time that there was an issue of that uh, because she was uh, having another nationality, so she's not eligible uh, to to run for president. But then she ran for president. Right, so this, this is the process. So when when a, an authoritarian government like now Cambodia, which is becoming authoritarian, there was a time that they were more democratic, right? They were more vibrant civil society. You know, the a, a lot of NGOs in Cambodia is amazing. You know, for such a small country, the number of civil society organizations, CBOs, are amazing. So it's as if there was also a time that a a democratic space was, was provided by, 
by Hansen, by Hunsen at the time. But now Hansen, because he's getting longer and longer in power, right? So yeah, he's becoming the longest uh, authoritarian leaders in our in our region. Even even Suharto, 30 years only, and then and then uh, Myanmar only about 20, 25 years. But now Hansen's probably almost 40 years, yeah, after 75. So uh this is a very uh, useful uh, instrument, tools of technique of authoritarian regime, you know, to, to limit uh, uh, regulations by law. And this practice is also conducted by Singapore. Look at Singapore. They're creating now a new law, you know, non-intervention uh, non non-intervention law or something like that, you know, which is basically trying to control that their own civil society will not be able to use you know the 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 sources, which is uh, uh, social media or technology. You know to to have a control of the government in running the government. So even a so-called liberal economic country like Singapore is always a repressive regime. Okay, now let's turn to the personal context because you've been really um, a defender of human rights. So we're interested. How did you evolve? into a human rights defender maybe a bit of talk a bit about yourself <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah <clears throat> yeah i know i know it's quite it's quite uh, uh when i look at myself yeah what am i doing now i'm now <laughs> entering the years of 70 years right i'm 64 this year yeah so but uh, this is the life that i've been doing and i enjoy it and i feel blessed until now what I've been doing. And I'm, I'm very glad that I can still maintain my commitment, my activities, you know, for the work that I have passion on it, right? It, it, it came from my, from my experience. Before I'm just a, a teenagers, you know, who loves dancing, drinking, <laughs> you know, partying, you know? And when I, when I entered university, you know, then I, I learned and I became an activist, a student activist, and I ran for, for a presidency of student body. You know, then I came across with different uh, uh, students from different socioeconomic background and began and became to think critically. You know, I, I, I took my uh, sociology as my, as my subject. So then I became to learn all critical thinking or both from from uh, leftist, uh, leftist literature that I, I read, all of that, you know, and these are the things that, that shape as well my, my, con my convince, you know, my passion that I, when I live, I will have to live as well as much as possible to the norms that I believe in, right? Even I was a victim of, uh, of a freedom. I, I, I advocate academic freedom during my, during my student time, I advocate for independent student body, right? I got arrested, you know, without trial, and I got expelled from the university because of political activities. So I said, no, this thing should never happen to other, to other people, you know? So that's the beginning of my passion. And then you will have to continue and maintain this passion by working on it, talking to the victims, becoming friends with the victims, and understanding the life of the victim as well. So I think that becomes a very strong uh, drivers that you, you continuously commit with the norms that you believe in. 
So I'm interested also how you were shaped as a child. How were you raised? Because your values seem to be very strong for, you know, you said academic freedom, equality, and you were detained, right? For yeah, yeah. put in prison, you were behind bars. Yeah, and I then, was prisoned by special, special command of Suharto that maintained Indonesia under authoritarian regime for 30 years. So how, uh, how were you raised? Maybe you're growing up years. I, I mean, so that maybe parents who are listening will also know how to get ideas on how to raise their children <laughs> to be committed yeah, uh, people yeah. like you. Yeah. Well, uh, my father is a Navy officer, right? So a Navy officer from an authoritarian regime, okay? But he's, he, 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 he's also an academic. He's a, he's a political, uh, how do you call that? Political uh, international relations uh, graduates. So he learns about social values. He learns as well. And he always teach me about how, how to uphold norms and values. We always have a debate, uh, a debate and discussion. And he's always trying to, 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 uh, to give me a space for a debate. Although sometimes that I will have to, to lock myself, you know, not to see him for a couple of days after that, you know, <laughs> because he's still the father, you know, he, ne he never got wrong. <laughs> but, uh, but he's trying. Is trying to be open and that. So I think that's the beginning. And I came from a Muslim, Muslim uh, with a liberal, liberal uh, minded uh, thinking. So uh, when I see now the development of conservatisms, the radicalization, it, it is really becoming very sad. You know, that our society now becoming very much divided because of that wrong values. The value is not wrong, but the way you actually advocate and believe in it is wrong because then you're losing your tolerance. You only believe what you believe in and you are also imposing what you believe in to others, even by violence. So that's the issue. So maybe a final question, Rafendi. Uh, would you have parting words for our viewers and listeners, especially those the young people and those who are committed to fighting uh, for human rights. Since with your long experience, maybe you can give some advice yeah. <laughs> so that they, they don't give up. <laughs> <laughs> Something that you need to have is be patient. Human rights struggle is a long struggle. So you build an endurance in your struggle. You move you move forward, sometimes you have to, to move backward one step to make another two step forward. So being patient, you know, and believe with what you believe in, norms and values. At the, at the same time, being smart to see any small changes to what you advocated. Because I see a lot of failures of human rights advocate. They are always stuck with their mind, you know, and they don't see the changes. They were, they are not able to see some little changes which is taking place. If you don't see the changes, so you don't know what the progress is. You know, you notice humorous activists sometimes using the same language of advocacy this year and 10 years ago, you know, as if nothing is, nothing is changes, but the world is changes. The society is changes. Technology has been changed. 
Now we are living in a very, very open and difficult social media network globally. At the same time, because of this freedom that you have, you become even more fanatic. You just want to see one sources. You don't want to see any other sources, although there are a lot of options, you know. So these are the challenges of the new generation of activists. They will have to look around. Look around means really looking at why they are thinking like that, why they are different with me, you know. So patient, looking very smart to see changes, then you will have a very long uh, ability to work. Well said. Thank you so much, Rafendi, for keeping us company for the time, giving us the time for this interview. Yeah. Thank you, Rafendi. Thank you, Thank It was you, great Shelly. talking to you. Thank you for keeping us company. Keep pushing back against autocracy. Keep fighting for democracy. The Great Asian Pushback is produced by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats with the support of the Friedrich Nauman Foundation for Freedom. This episode was made by Marites Vitug, Lito Arlegue, and Paolo Zamora with creative input from Jaja Hanolo, administrative assistance from Audi Frias and Chelsea Caballero, and editing by Point B Multimedia.